You know, just before Thanksgiving, I had uh, last had the opportunity to preach here at Crossroads. And on that occasion, I preached uh, out of 1 John. I preached out of chapter 1. And my sermon explored why an authentic Christian had to believe that, that the incarnation of Christ was a real and historical event. Today, what I'm going to do is continue in 1 John, and I'm going to discuss why an understanding of sin is vital to being an authentic Christian. And I'd like to begin today with a story that received continuous attention in the press just a couple of years ago. I'm willing to bet that there's not anyone in this sanctuary today, anyone watching at home today, who's not familiar with Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein is responsible for producing such award-winning movies as Goodwill Hunting, Shakespeare in Love, The King's Speech, and Lion. And he's also known because of the dozens of women, including some of Hollywood's most famous actresses, like Gwyneth Paltrow and Angelina Jolie and Ashley Judd, having come forward and accusing him of sexually harassing and in many cases molesting or even raping them. And since March of 2020, Weinstein has been incarcerated in New York State on, for the sex crimes he committed. Now, here's what's interesting. There were dozens and dozens of people in his company, along with many actors and actresses and reporters, who allegedly knew about Harvey's despicable behavior for years and covered it up. There's one article uh, that, one article said that Harvey's behavior didn't get the media attention it deserved because there were so many journalists on his payroll working as consultants on movie projects or as screenwriters or for his magazine. And what makes this story about Harvey Weinstein even more outrageous is that while he was harassing and molesting women in five-star hotel rooms across the globe, his company was distributing films like The Hunting Ground. Anybody familiar with The Hunting Ground? The Hunting Ground was a 2015 documentary about sexual assault on college campuses. Do you see the hypocrisy here? I mean, here he is, he's producing a movie about sexual assault while at the same time a sexually assaulting women. And it gets worse. I mean, this guy led the effort to endow the Gloria Steinem faculty chair in media culture and feminist studies at Rutgers University. He personally sponsored the annual National Women's March. And he was a huge fundraiser and supporter of our first woman presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton. But what's most astounding, at least to me, is that the Los Angeles Press Club gave Harvey Weinstein its Truth Teller Award calling him an example of integrity and social responsibility. Now, my point in beginning with this sordid tale is to say this, that there are many people all around us who are hypocrites. There are many people who are con artists. There are many people who are inauthentic. And we ought not to be shocked by this. You know, almost 2,000 years ago, the Apostle John wrote about authenticity and inauthenticity in, a New Test in this New Testament letter that we call 1 John. And in this letter, John is concerned about the question of being an authentic Christian. 
And throughout the letter, he asked this question, how do you know if you or someone else is an authentic Christian? You know, there are so many people in America who claim to be Christian. You know, they say, I'm a Christian. After all, I was raised in a church-going family. Or I'm a Christian because I was confirmed. Or I'm a Christian because I spent eight years in Catholic school and had my knuckles wrapped by a nun on many occasions. I'm not a Jew or a Muslim or an atheist. So I guess, therefore, I am a Christian. But John's point in this letter is that you don't have to guess if you're an authentic Christian. You don't have to guess if someone else is an authentic Christian. There are ways to tell. There are ways that you can know. And today what we're going to do is dive into this text uh, um, that's found in 1 John 1, 5 through 2, 2. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you noticed that sin or sinner is mentioned eight times? times in these eight verses, eight times. And today, though, what we're going to do is we're going to consider John's discussion on the relationship that an authentic Christian has to sin. And I've called today's sermon, The Authentic Christian in Sin. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here today. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us a heart, you've given us a, a, a desire, a hunger to get to know you better. And Father, we just pray that over this next half hour or so that you just open this scripture to us, bring it alive. Father, I pray that these words, that they're not, the, they're, there's no significance to these words coming from me. These are your words out of your scripture, and I pray that you make them come alive in the hearts of everybody who hears them. Lord, be blessed as we dive into your word and as we seek to know you more and draw us closer to you through it. Father, I pray this in your name and for your glory. In the name of your precious son, Jesus, amen. Okay, so eight times in eight verses, John mentions the word sin. And I think that should be, show us how important this is. But I think before we can really start to explore this idea of the importance of sin, we have to ask this question. How do we even know what sin is? How do we know if we have sinned or if something is a sin? And we must ask then, what is the standard that we use for measuring sin? I found a survey recently in which one in five, or nearly 20% of self-described Christians don't think that having sex with someone other than your spouse is sinful. The same survey indicated that one out of three self-described Christians don't think that maintaining an online dating profile while you're married or dating someone is sinful. And that one out of three self-described Christians don't think that sin, it is sinful cheating for a married person to be emotionally involved with someone besides their own spouse. Now, friends, i got to be honest. I can't imagine where they dug up the respondents to this survey. But the survey brings to light an essential question. How do we know if something is sinful? How do we know? Do we take a poll and do we ask what every, everyone around us thinks and go with the majority? 
or do we need uh, do we need to be in with the the trending morality? You know, is something deemed sinful if Joyce Behar and Whoopi Goldberg on the View declares it so? Or do we forget the polls and, and contemporary media and we just decide by examining our own hearts and by ourselves, like after a period of careful inference, inf after looking inside your own hearts, do we determine if something is or isn't sinful? I mean, if it doesn't bother you, does that make it okay? Well, in this text, the Apostle John says that other people and their opinion of what is right or what is wrong are not the standard for determining sin. Neither is our own private opinion or, or, or about what our consciences will or won't allow. The truth is that depending upon where you were raised and when you were raised and how you were raised, you might condone terrible things. You know, if you were white and raised in the South before the Civil War, you might think that slavery was okay, that it was the natural order of things. Or if you are a, a man and raised in certain Muslim countries even today, you might think it's beating your wife is okay. See, here's what I'm getting at. The only safe standard for measuring right or wrong or what is or is not sin, according to the Apostle John, the only safe standard is God and his own character. In 1 John 1.5, he says, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. What does that mean? Well, Light in the Bible is moral purity. Darkness in the Bible is a symbol of lies. Darkness is, is ignorance. Darkness is error. And John is saying that there is, that, that there is no deception in God. There is no hypocrisy in God. That God, unlike Harvey Weinstein, doesn't publicly say one thing and privately do another. There is not a division between God's statements and his activities or between his private and public life. There is no misleading. There's no distortion. Do you know that God never changes his opinion from year to year? That even though the norms of our society change, God's standards remain the same. And the only consistent unchanging, safe standard for determining what is or is not sin is the character of, a, of God who is totally light without a hint of shadow or dark corner in his personality. Let's take a look at the structure of this text for just a sec. The, the structure here is really elegant. What we find is this, that three times John lays out a false claim by the early opponents of Christianity. Let me show you what I mean. In, in chapter 1, verse 6, we read this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Drop down to verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Drop down to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See, here's what we see. Three false claims, three lies. And these three false claims, they're followed by three remedies or three cures for the lies. See, what I want you to see here is this. The Bible is not 
your typical self-help book. It doesn't spend more time on the diagnosis than the cure. And any time that the Bible says, here's the problem, it immediately comes around and says, now, here's the remedy for the problem. See, God doesn't drive us into the ground by simply telling us how bad we are. You know, God may hold up a mirror to our face and tell us there's dirt on our faces. But he also says at the same time that there's soap and there's water so that you can wash your face clean. God is telling us, I want you to know that there's something really wrong here. But here's the hope. Here's the answer. Here's the remedy. God's word always offers us a balanced message. John Piper expressed it this way, and I love this. He said, we are way worse than we fear, but God loves us way more than we can imagine. Isn't that cool? We are way worse than we fear, but God loves us way more than we can imagine. But anyhow, the heretics with whom John was battling, they made these three false claims, and they told these three lies. And the first big lie is this, that sin doesn't affect my relationship with God. In verse 6, John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with him, that's relationship, and walk in darkness, that's sin, we lie and do not practice the truth. See, the heretics with whom John was battling claimed that you could be in a close relationship with God while at the same time living contrary to what his character demands. You know, something like this, I have a wonderful relationship with God. I feel so close to him. I constantly feel his presence. I hear his voice in my heart. Yet all the while, I'm involved in habitual sin. You know what, though? Sin doesn't affect my relationship with God at all. But John says that's impossible. John says that you are deluding yourself to believe that you could walk in darkness and yet be in close relationship with God who is light. You know, religion can be a cover for horrific behavior. You know, there are many people that have fallen prey to the lie that we can pay God off with a little bit of religion. You know, this idea of, you know, oh, yes, I'm involved in shady business practices or, or, or um, oh, yes, I'm, uh, uh, I'm unfaithful in my marriage. And, yes, I'm a hothead and explode in anger, but I'm really close to God. You see, I pay God off. I I, I tithe. I read my Bible. I go to church. I raise my hands during worship, and I get really emotional. Therefore, I'm close to God. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand this, that biblical religion, the religion of the Old and New Testament, was the first religion to ever tie together the worship of God and our morals. See, throughout the Bible, the biblical writers, especially the Old Testament prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Amos and Micah, they skewer this idea that I can be close to God who is light while I walk in the darkness so long as I'm involved in religion. And John is telling us that an authentic Christian understands that you can't separate your spiritual life from your morals, that God won't be bought off by a little bit of religion. And we can't say that sin is no big deal. We can't say God is beyond all of that, that he doesn't really care about the darkness in my life, that he's okay with it, you know, that I'm the only one beating myself up about this sin, but that God is saying not to worry. 
He's saying, don't worry about your habitual gossip or your habitual anger or your habitual porn use or your habitual lying. It's not a big deal. John, throughout this little letter, says that sin is a huge deal to a Christian. Let me ask you a question. Do you consider your sin to be a huge deal for you? How does sin impact a Christian anyway? Let me just tick off a few things for you. If we habitually sin, it will damage our intimacy with God. That's what we see in verse 6. That's what verse 6 is all about. That we can't walk in darkness and claim fellowship with God who is light. And certainly, if we habitually sin, we can become enslaved to our sin. You know, when, when we open the door to sin... Uh, um, as time progresses, we may find ourselves in greater and greater bondage so that we cannot stop indulging in that particular sin. Friends, that's what addiction is all about. It's about slavery to sin. And if we habitually sin, it will damage our witness. You know, we can't bring good news to people while we ourselves are bad news. How much damage is done to our witness for Christ by radically inconsistent living on the part of God's people? John's going to tell us later on in the letter that if we sin, we're going to lose our assurance, our assurance that we are saved people, that we may still be saved, we may still have eternal life, but we won't be certain of it. We won't know if we're for real or if we're fakes or if we're just fooling ourselves and others. The Bible tells us that if we habitually sin, if we give ourselves over to sin in an area of our life, that we could open ourselves up to the demonic. Friends, here's what I want you to see. Sin is a very big deal for a Christian. So here's the question. What's the remedy for this false claim that sin does not affect our relationship with God or that sin is no big deal? And to find the answer to that, we turn to verse 7. Where John writes, but if we walk in the light, as he is the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So what's the remedy? Well, here in verse 7, it's stated, walk in the light. An authentic Christian walks in the light. Well, what does it mean to walk in the light? Let me approach this concept by dealing with the opposite of walking the light. That is covering up our sins. And friends, let me say this as plainly as possible. If you are involved in having to cover your tracks, that is a really good sign that you are outside of the will of God and you are doing what you ought not to be doing. It is a good indication that you are sinning. You know, the person who is in the will of God does not have to cover their tracks. The person who is in the will of God never has to cover their tracks. A person who is in the will of God never has to go through their computer's history and delete certain items. A person who is in the will of God does not have to delete text messages from their cell phone or hide certain financial transactions or pretend that to pretend to be where they aren't or have someone else providing them an alibi or get their friends to lie for them. If you are involved in some sort of cover-up, you are by definition in sin and not walking in the light. 
and you know that you're walking in darkness and that perhaps you have an addiction to a particular sin, if you are working hard to cover up that behavior, if, if, if this is you, friend, you may have an addiction. You know, people of eating disorders are, are always involved in cover-ups. You know, they, you, you have to hide your binging and your purging. Alcoholics always cover up their drinking. They drink vodka because others can't smell it on their breath. Or, or they eat breath mints or they drink when no one is around. You know, maybe they use a sports bottle so you can't see they're drinking alcohol. Or, or they find creative places in their home to hide their bottles. Opioid addicts lose tons of weight but they claim that they're dieting. They claim that constant runny nose is due to a cold, that they're falling asleep is because they were up too late the night before. And those who are injecting, they cover up their scars by, by wearing, uh, always wearing long sleeves. And those who are involved in gambling, they cover up their financial losses. And those who find comfort in shopping cover their debts by paying, playing financial shell games with credit cards, hiding credit card statements. Friends, here's my point. If you are involved in a cover-up of any kind, guaranteed, you are not walking in the light. Walking in the light is living transparently. It's living without cover-up. It's not living without ever sinning. It's living without cover-up and acknowledging your sins by being open and vulnerable. Walking in the light is acknowledging when you screw up. Walking in the light is quickly confessing what you just did or what you just said was hurtful, asking for forgiveness, being humble about yourself. Walking in the light is endeavoring to live in God's light by asking God to search us out. Walking in the light is a pray, praying along with the psalmist in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, where he writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So the first big lie is that sin doesn't affect my relationship with God. What's the cure? Walk in the light. So what's the second big lie? Well, the second big lie we find in 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. The second big lie is this. We are without sin. You know, the heretics with whom John was battling, they claimed to be unaffected by a sin nature. They were not fallen like everyone else. And these heretics claimed that they were enlightened, and so by their enlightenment, their sin nature was destroyed. Think about that for a second. How can anyone look inside themselves and say that? How can anyone look inside themselves and say, I'm without sin. I, I, I don't have a sin nature. I am so spiritually mature that sin no longer is a problem for me, that I can handle any situation. I'm the kind of person who can walk near the, near the edge of a cliff and not fall off, or I can skate out on thin ice, even though there are warning signs posted all over saying, danger, danger, thin ice. But I can skate out on thin ice and not fall through. I can visit my girlfriend's apartment at midnight after a couple of drinks and not end up tumbling in the bed with her. Or I can work in a really immoral environment and not be affected at all. Or I can put myself in a really compromising position and not give way to temptation. How can anyone think that they are so strong and immune from the corrupting effects of sin? 
Well, there are lots of people who believe that about themselves. And that's why there are so many powerful Christian leaders who fall and so many devoted followers of Jesus who end up making dreadful, life-destroying decisions. And John tells us what the problem is. He says we deceive ourselves. The problem is self-deception. And, you know, think about it. We have so many ways to deceive ourselves. We, we, we are expert at developing defense mechanisms. It's, it's effortless for us to create ways to hide the truth from ourselves by rationalization and denial and projection and on and on and on. So what's the remedy for this self-deception, for believing that we can handle almost anything or, or, or something we're, we're doing is right when it's not right? What's the remedy for that? Well, John tells us that the remedy is confession and cleansing. In, 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 in verse 9, we read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's take that apart. Let me start with this concept of cleansing. John uses a particularly strong Greek word that we translate as purify or cleanse. And the Greek word is katharizo. Katharizo, it means cleansing or cleaning out. And this word expresses what happens to a person who confesses and is cleansed out by Christ's blood. And this word katharizo is where we get the English word catharsis. Okay, are you familiar with the term catharsis? It means it's undergoing a process where you release pent-up emotions. You know, sometimes we come across a person who has gone through a traumatic experience, and they buried that experience. Yet that person may still be suffering from all kinds of traumatic manifestations. And in catharsis, the trauma is revealed, and the person experiences this tremendous release. It's a release of... Of, of, of pain, of all the buried hurt. Catharsis is an inner healing. So I think we have to ask, why is it that we often don't feel this catharsis? We don't feel this cleaning out or purging of the guilt and regret and, and, and the felt accusations that we experience after we sin. You know, even though we go to God, you know, we don't experience catharsis or freeing up of our emotions or cleansing of our souls, even though we're praying. And John tells us that there is a condition for this cleansing and purging. So in John 1.9, he writes, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, what I'm telling you is this. The condition for catharsis, for cleansing, is confession. It's confession. Now, the word confess is also an interesting one in Greek. The word is homologeo. And homo means same, and logeo means word or speech. So what John is saying here is this, that to confess is to say the same thing as God. Um, it's to say the same thing as God says about your cert a certain behavior or a certain attitude. So to confess is to come into full agreement with God about what you're doing or about what you're saying. Now, Personally, I found it helpful in confession not only to agree with God about what I did or what I said uh, and, and agree that it was wrong, but in order to go through the catharsis, I found it as helpful to confess to God all the results of my sin. 
So it may sound something like this, you know, as a result of me saying that, God, my child felt really put down, or my wife felt judged, and here are all the results of what I did. You know, here's the hurt that I caused. Here's how what I did or failed to do uh, affected me, and here's how it affected other people, and here's how it affected my relationship with you, God. So you agree with God about yourself and your activities and your attitudes, and that's how you feel cleansed. That's how you will be purged and you'll be released. Okay. So the first big lie is that sin doesn't affect my relationship with God. The second big lie is that we are without sin. What's the third big lie? Well, the third big lie is this, that we have not. Sin, And we find this in verse 10, where John writes, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. You know, it's like saying, I'm not a sinner, I'm a good person, I don't do things that are wrong. Now let's just stop here for a second. You know, we've been, we've been talking about sin, um, but we really haven't addressed this que- question. What does the Bible mean by the word sin? And friends, this is a huge topic. I mean, we could spend weeks exploring what the Bible means by sin. But I want to focus on this particular word that John uses for sin. And the particular word for sin here is the Greek word amartia. And it means to miss the mark or to miss the point. You know, it means to veer off from God's purpose. And friends, that's what sin is. You see, God has a purpose for everything. Everything he created was created with purpose. God is a purposeful God. He's an intentional God. And what God has made, he made for a purpose, and we sin when we miss the purpose or when we miss his purpose. Let me give you an illustration. Recently, I saw a guy driving through Hermitage in his Mercedes, and his license plate read this. It said G-O-T-3-B-N-Z, or got three Benzes. And that's what he was saying on his license plate. And when I saw this license plate, I thought to myself, brother, you have missed the purpose for your money. God hasn't blessed you so that you could acquire three Mercedes Benzes. God hasn't blessed you so that you could create envy in others by advertising on your license plate how many Benzes you have. He blessed you so you could be a blessing to others. I haven't outed anybody here. There's nobody here that has that, right? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) How often do you and I miss the purpose for which God created something? Think about this for a second. You know, the purpose of speech is not to tear someone else down or to make us look good or to tell the world how great we are and belittle others or, 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 or to toot our own horns. The purpose of speech is to encourage other people, to instruct others, to thank God, to bless, to bring truth. The purpose of work is not to establish an identity for ourselves. It's to participate in God's great work, to partner with God to heal the world. We constantly miss the purpose. We constantly miss the point, and so we sin. So what's the remedy for these sin issues? Well, here's what we read in 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. John writes, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours, but also for the whole world. So the remedy, Jesus Christ, our righteous defender, and our sacrifice. And when we mess up, and we come to God in confession, when we agree with him about ourselves, when we turn from darkness and walk in the light, we don't come before God alone. We have Jesus Christ, our righteous advocate, to speak up in our defense. John is saying, when you go to court, in the, when, when you stand before God in the divine court, you're not going there without a lawyer pleading with God to be merciful for you because you have Jesus Christ. Christ interceding, arguing on your behalf, and he is a righteous advocate. Look at verse 1 with me. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. See, Jesus is not some shady attorney who's cutting corners or arguing innocence based on a technicality or finding some loophole in the law claiming that we haven't done anything wrong. Jesus Christ upholds God's law. And what does Jesus Christ plead? Verse 2 says, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus pleads, Father, you sent me in love to pay for this one's sins, to cleanse their conscience, and to establish the righteous requirements that you demand. And understand this, friends. This is so important. Jesus is not prying forgiveness from the, the unwilling closed fist of the Father. God the Father in love sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And when Jesus defends us before the Father, he stands before a Father who wants to forgive us, who made provision for us and wants us to come into his presence. It is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. It is God's desire to show us grace. It is God who created this plan of salvation by offering his son. Friends, here's the point. Despite what the culture may say, sin is real. Sin is real. And for a Christian, sin will create obstacles to your ability to witness powerfully. It will impede your ability to grow in Christ and create a distance between you and God. And whether you are a Christian or not, there are always consequences for sin. It will always cost you. Whether you are a believer in Jesus or not, sin will take the things that you love the most from you. And pursuing sin will, and friends, I am not exaggerating here, whether if you pursue sin, it will kill you. And bondage to an unrepented sin will cost you your eternity. There's only one remedy for sin. Turn to Christ. There's only one way, brothers and sisters, to be an authentic Christian, and it's by walking in the light. It's by being honest and clear in our confessions, and it's by turning to Jesus Christ as our advocate and our sacrifice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what you did to save us 
It's nothing that we deserved. It's nothing that we earned. It was just your love shown as you poured out the, your, the blood of your precious Son on that cross. And Father, we can't even begin to conceive of how great a cost that was, how great a sacrifice that was. But we thank you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you just show us, you just reveal to us again and again, over and over, how much you love us, how much it hurts you when we cling to our sin instead of coming to you, and that you change our hearts, that you continue to grow us, you continue to draw us to you. And Father, we pray that you give us a boldness to declare this, to live this, to show this to those that we know and love who don't know you. Father, we just thank you and we love you. We praise you and we glorify your name. We pray this in your name and for your glory and in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.